0: Braver Angels presents Uniting America. I'm your host, John Wood Jr. For those in the know, when you think of the most profound moral, spiritual, and philosophical voices of the rising generation in the areas of race, politics, and society, it's hard to not immediately speak the name of Chloe Valdary. Chloe is a writer and entrepreneur revolutionizing the work of diversity and inclusion with a program called the Theory of Enchantment. An increasingly popular approach that leverages philosophy and popular culture in ways that humanize our differences rather than pitting our experiences against each other. It is based on a view of the world that centers the power of loving oneself as a bridge to more truly loving other people. We explore Chloe's relationship to theology and the idea of the kingdom of God. We also consider the strengths and weaknesses of major thinkers from Ibram X. Kendi on racial justice to Jordan Peterson on religion and dig into the worldview of a young woman who many see as helping to reawaken the conscience of the age. She's a fascinating American, and one whom we are likely to hear from in the years to come. And now, Chloe Valdary. Chloe Valdary, welcome to Uniting America. It's so nice to see you.
1: Thank you, John. Thank you for having me here.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is a special thing. Um, you're somebody who, I suppose we've known each other for a few years um, now. We never quite get as many opportunities to interact directly as I, as I tend to hope. But what's very true for me is that I, like many other people, uh, have drawn uh, deep inspiration from, from your work, from your commentary. And sort of from the space of consciousness, if you will, that you hold uh, within a broader, sort of heterodox landscape and a wider universe of racial and political commentary that so often resolves to sort of simple binaries and sort of irreconcilable sort of definitions of who we are to each other. Um, I wanted to give people the opportunity to understand sort of the heart of your philosophy and perspective here. Um, And to give you an opportunity to talk about the theory of enchantment, uh, for starters, through through that frame. But in a world in which so many of us look at each other and come to hard and fast conclusions about who the other person is on the basis of their political or racial label, how do you explain your way of looking at society and humanity?
1: how do I explain my way of looking at society and humanity? That sure. <laughs> is a tall order, John, uh, but I will try to do my best to it's, sum it up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my way is simply to try to love people, um, which is a simple thing, but a very difficult thing to do. In my opinion, our incapacity to love one another derives from our incapacity to love ourselves. And if we can learn how to love ourselves unconditionally, then that will translate to love for the other. That's the gist of my philosophy, if I, if you were to call it that. That's certainly the gist of theory of enchantment. I don't I don't really see it as my philosophy. Um perhaps my ego does, but I think <laughs> my higher self knows that this isn't really my own thing. This is more things that I've learned uh, through the 29 years I've been on the earth. And um, yeah, that's the that's the essence. We have to learn how to love ourselves if we are going to be able to love one another. And that requires not just getting used to, but really welcoming the complexity of what it means to be a human being. Uh, coming to terms with the fact that there is no really objectified Sense of self at the heart of what it means to be human. This is an idea that has been taught in many wisdom traditions from the East more than from the West. I'd say, at least in in recent memory, uh, these are ideas that have come more from Taoism and Buddhism and um, perhaps mystical Christianity as well. But less prominent, I think, in Western philosophy as we know it or as it is usually taught in schools. Uh, but I think that we have a caricatured sense of ourselves for a whole host of reasons. And we tend to uh, stick to stereotyped preconceptions of ourselves and those senses of identity give us security. Hmm. And uh, we tend to also project that view onto others. And when that view is challenged as it will be, because that's what it means to be human. Um, we tend to fall into insecurity and we don't know what to do with insecurity. And oftentimes we will fall into defense mechanisms or utilize defense mechanisms like projecting things that we don't like about ourselves onto others in order to deal with that sense of insecurity. But the heart of the matter is that we have to learn how to love uh, ourselves and uh, those in our communities.
2: Mm.
0: Can I love myself if I do not love you? Can I love myself if I do not love my fellow man uh, in the way that you're describing?
1: I would say no. And that's a great question, John. I think that there's this illusion of separation that exists between human beings. Um, It's very difficult for me to tease out what that means. It's sort of a poetic way of saying that. The lens through which I view the world dictates how I show up in the world. And you and I right now, we have a call and response type relationship. That's the nature Mm -hmm. of a dialogue. I might say something and you respond. You say something and I respond. This is an active thing. It's like an organism. If I am in conversation with you and I am claiming to love myself without loving you, I am rejecting or I am denying rather the fact that there are aspects of you that are within me and Mm. vice versa. And so I can certainly walk about with that illusion. Mm. um, And that might result in certain inconsistencies in my walk through life. Um, But in truth, it's certainly not, not the case that I can love myself unconditionally. And that's really the key word here. I can't love myself unconditionally mm. if I am incapable of loving you.
0: Mm. How does this truth show up in the in the theory of enchantment? I feel like methodology is not quite uh, <laughs> elegant enough a, a term for perhaps what you do, but but tell us a bit about your work and your methodology and in connection with with these principles.
1: Yeah. And I don't have a problem with that word. It reminds me of method reminds me of like dojo or training. Mm, And I do see the work that is done in theory of enchantment as a kind of martial art dojo, Mm. perhaps more on the spiritual level than on the physical level. But yeah, that methodology, the container includes workshops. So companies will come to theory of enchantment. Schools will come to theory of enchantment, wanting to learn how to do this. And we will either engage them through workshops that are, you know, 90 minute rounds or full day rounds, or we'll do that. Plus we'll engage them with our online curriculum, Hmm. which is a longer experience, a longer training, uh, it's 25 lessons. Each lesson is really a diving into the self, uh, an attempt to teach people how to, learn to get in right relationship with different aspects of themselves, start to see how the, their selves have been conditioned and cultivated and, you know, the impact of their parents, the impact of any baggage they might be uh, wrestling with holding the impact of the ways in which they show up uh, in terms of trying to love uh, these lessons. Also, whether in the curriculum or in The workshops, these lessons are sprinkled throughout with pop culture references, uh, because these references we find can be used as guideposts to help folks remember the deeper truths about their higher selves. The reason why a lot of pop culture is popular is because they contain deep truths about what it means to be human and what it means to wrestle as a human being. Hmm. Uh, So we might, you know, talk about the saga of Simba in the Lion King and how that can be in conversation with Marcus Aurelius's saga <laughs> as a Stoicist right. and, you know, working on his own Dharma, working through his own methodology and leaving us with that methodology mm. in a body of work known as Stoicism. That's just a, a window into, into what we're trying to do with the theory of enchantment.
0: Mm. So first of all, it's It's remarkable, of course, just how dynamic your um your uh, your methodology is and the way in which it is able to tap into ancient wisdom and contemporary culture in a way that sort of bridges the transcendent truths between them. There are very few other people for whom it at least for whom it would come uh natural to sort of Seize upon mm. the sort of <laughs> transcendent connections that exist between, you know, Beyonce and Carl Jung or Kendrick Lamar and, you know, well, you know, Jordan Peterson or, or sure. Marcus Aurelius, uh, to jump back to the ancient traditions here. Um, and yet you, you not only do that, but you sort of proffer a way of looking at and engaging uh, in the world that embodies that, you know, in your own, in your own person. Um, and I think that that's a tremendous sort of reason why people are, are drawn to you. You know, I, I think that there is a desire in sort of society and and human consciousness to remain in touch, um, with, with the, with the brighter light of tradition, but to also not become detached from the richness of the world as we live in it. And, you know, a person can sort of, you know drown in one side of that equation or the other, mm-hmm. but you, you hold this remarkable balance, you know, and act as sort of this balance for people to be able to harmonize those, those two things. Um, one quick question I have about that is, um, when we talk about sort of, uh, reinvigorating, you know, our sense of enchantment with, with humanity, our love, for each other, uh, as being in part, a reflection of our love for ourselves and the recognition of the interconnectedness thereof. Um, what is the role of religion? Is it a necessary component for our being able to reinforce this larger sort of shift of consciousness in our society, or would we be, uh, investing too much in, in, um, perhaps uh, an old way of thinking about things, referring to religion that many people think could be discarded while still moving forward in a way that reinforces this enchantment.
1: Well, John, religion is such a large thing. Yeah, No doubt. (laughs) Um, People tend to believe that the ways in which they interface with religion in 2022, or even in 1999, or even in you know, uh, 1922 is sort of the way religion has always been, but like dialogue, religion is a ongoing, uh, I would say, live uh, experience, live relationship. It's an organism. It's not a fixed thing, and so I think people need to keep in mind that that's my view of religion when I answer this question. Mm, okay. The way Christianity looked you know, in the days of Jesus is very different than the way it looks today. It's very different than the way it looked even 50 years after Jesus. So um, I think I'm very much aware of the ebbs and flows of religion. And to the degree that religion simply entails having a relationship with or having a sense of the sacred, uh, if, if that is what I am simply defining religion as then religion is absolutely necessary in order for us to adopt this framework of love now that doesn't mean that it will look the same way it has looked for the past 50 years or so 100 years or so and in fact i think religion requires an upgrade Mm. and i think that a lot of the um, pathologies that we're seeing sort of emerge in our nation's Um, Moment (laughs) right now is may just be one of the birth pains of new forms of religion trying to come into existence Mm. because older forms were not are no longer sufficient Mm. and in fact have a a deadness to them that no longer resonates with us. But in so far as religion, which comes from the word religio, which means to bind, in so far as we must bind ourselves to the sense of, a, of the sacred, insofar as we must all reckon with the fact of our mortality. Um, and I think as long as we are mortal, there will be a sense of the sacred. Then religion will be necessary uh, to sort of give us a kind of vision that goes beyond material things without m- rejecting right mater- materialism. Um, mm. Because I do think there's a strand of religion that can reject both materialism and the material world in and of itself, and, and then it becomes a problem. Mm. Um, but I think that the saying that man does not live by bread alone is true. And I think we are hungry for something beyond that material bread, something that shows us that our lives have meaning and purpose um, and gives us a sense of inner peace and contentment with our journeys that each of us has to take as human beings. Mm -hmm. And again, that journey is essentially our wrestling with our mortal frame. As long as that is the case, and I think that is fundamental to what it means to be human, religion Mm -hmm. will be, a binding of ourselves to the sacred, I'll say, will be not only necessary, but required in the in the deep and profound sense of the word in order for us to, I think, um, become our higher selves.
2: Mm.
0: I do want to ask you a bit about materialism, but before I do, uh, would you care to say anything about, in a in a era where somewhat to your point you know increasingly many people uh describe themselves as non-religious but also spiritual and 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 Mm -hmm. not necessarily religious can you say anything about how religious tradition has impacted your own development and your own your own journey and becoming who you are
1: yeah so i grew up in a home that was very much into the idea of uh, the kingdom of God as a mm. as a thing to aspire towards as a thing to look forward to. Mm. I grew up in a home that was very much enmeshed in that sort of dialogue um, and that sort of spirituality. Um, I also grew up in a home that was very much curious about about the the process of seeking the truth in general, and so that really questioned certain ideas that were part of Christianity, mainstream Christianity, that were assumed to be like basic to Christianity, uh basic traditions and rituals like Christmas and Easter were questioned. Um and rituals like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which come from the Jewish tradition, were uh embraced. So there's both, I would say two themes. One is seeking the truth and the pursuit of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, this very powerful idea that was at the center, really, of how the family, of how my family sort of like arranged its entire routine. You know, we would pray before we would leave the house. We would uh, every Friday night have Bible study and every Saturday we'd go to church um, all in all in search of the kingdom of God. Mm. Uh, so that is certainly a tradition that has seeped into my psyche, in that sense.
0: <laughs> right, that's a thread I'm very tempted to pull on a little bit, a little bit <laughs> you more. You can if you want. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I'll just say just sort of about myself briefly that uh, you know, um, I, I I guess I probably haven't talked abundantly much even at this point in my sort of. You know, uh, career as it were, as a public intellectual or political figure, uh, or however you would put it, uh, about sort of sort of my larger religious orientation. But I resonate very deeply with this idea of the kingdom as being something to sort of look forward to uh, as something that sort of exists as kind of the horizon, you know, mm-hmm. um, behind you know at, at the end of sort of the road that I see myself as traveling, and and us as as all sort of traveling, uh, uh, together. Um, and, uh, yeah, I I guess I'm wondering, um, you know, is this uh, a consciously animating principle for you still? Um, or is it something that you would sort of see as as kind of uh, having established a a bit of a mental habit for you early in life Mm. that just happens to maybe still be rolling in, in some way, even if you don't take that that idea quite as quite as seriously.
1: It sounds like you asked me: uh, Is this idea alive for you, or is this idea alive for you and you don't know it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the question is sort of coming to me in real time, but yeah, you you you, ca- you captured it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, well, you know, Carl Jung and in Jungian mm-hmm. psychology in general, the this idea of the kingdom is like mm-hmm. a symbol. It's an archetype of human being who has become whole. Mm. And, uh, and so it's hard for me to, it's actually hard for me to unsee it from that lens, Mm uh, just from a, from a deep psychological lens. Um, I think that for me, you know, several things have changed for me in terms of how I relate to, the Bible in general, I think that I mean I'm I'm pretty convinced that so many people in the Bible were definitely on psychedelics. <laughs> so <laughs> that,
2: sure. that's right.
1: for starters. Mm-hmm. Um right. mm-hmm. and you know, more power to them, but I think a lot of problems happen when we are trying to uh wrestle with the text without mm. understanding that, which I mm. I i'm I'm pretty convinced that most of the people want psychedelics it's interesting yeah um mm-hmm. but i think that if the if i see like the kingdom of of heaven or quite frankly the queendom of heaven <laughs> as this as this right. kind of um future or vision where i am you know binding my ego to my higher self and my higher self is sort of mysterious part of me, which is eternal, which I'm, you know, I can never quite grasp. And Mm. it's a, it's a part of every human being, you know, on earth. I just finished watching the show, our universe uh, on Mm. Netflix where Morgan Freeman does the voiceover, which if you haven't seen it, I super, super recommend it. It's one of the best shows Mm. I've ever seen about our universe. And Mm. you can see this, this great miraculous uh, (coughs) mystery of creation yeah. and how you know chemicals that we are familiar with now were sort of created with the collision or through the collision of of atoms that were happening in the sun mm-hmm. you know billions of years ago. And it's this really beautiful <laughs> symphony uh, explanation of how how we got here. And insofar as the kingdom of God can be a metaphor for being in touch with that and being um really humbled by that and in all of that and mm. having my ego be in service of that and seeing that beauty within the other
2: mm.
1: uh, as a reflection of being able to see it within myself. I think that that pursuit of the kingdom is, is what I have decided to do. Um mm. So it's certainly alive within me, but it's not the same character or flavor that I was born into with.
0: Right, right. And so perhaps in some sense, you yourself are an example of, well, I don't know if it would perhaps be fair or accurate to say sort of pursuing a, a new religious path, but you are bound, I guess, substantively mm-hmm. to the spirit of this ancient concept in a way that shows up in the immaculate contemporary uh, <laughs> flavor that is Chloe Valdery. Uh, I suppose I'll just leave that at that.
1: <laughs> I'll just leave um, that there
0: too. <laughs> sure.
1: we can both uh, leave it there. <laughs>
0: um, but um, I do want to know, what do you pull from secular humanism? Uh, do you mm. sort of see yourself as being a uh, um, somebody who also carries forward some of the legacy of the Enlightenment? Um, mm. Is that... Uh,
2: a core part of you
1: the enlightenment is tricky john mm-hmm. <laughs> um the enlightenment is tricky because you know and i've been really inspired by uh john Vervekey's work on this cognitive scientist from the university of toronto he was a huge fan of socrates and did an incredible series called awakening from the meaning crisis where he talks about the enlightenment um the Enlightenment is tricky because I, I recognize it as this beautiful period where people were questioning, you know, conventions that were concretized by theological institutions who claimed to have a monopoly on the truth and who wanted to dictate, um, you know, how they thought that the cosmos actually worked and, how the universe actually worked and certainly we're putting people in prison and torturing them and killing them for questioning their orthodoxy. Right. And so the, Enlight- the enlightenment comes out of a deep stirring within the human soul to want to know, right? And to yeah. want to, to question what's come before. And I think there's something very beautiful about that. And there's certainly a, a thread within me that I mean, my, the house that I grew up in was very much, whether it knew it or not, very much <laughs> informed by that tradition. And at the same time, you know, I've, I've, hear, I've heard in more, uh, you know, self-described right-wing circles that postmodernism is a kind of um, revolt against the Enlightenment. Uh, I don't think that's true. I think that postmodernism is actually the outcome of the Enlightenment. Because what happened in the Enlightenment was this constant questioning, this never-ending questioning, um, such that I think it started to unravel itself and manifested in postmodernism. And there's another thing that happened with the Enlightenment, which was, and we talk about this in Theory of Enchantment, actually, Um, because there's a difference between enchantment and Enlightenment.
2: <laughs> mm, mm, okay. Just from
1: a... Just from a lighting perspective, this yeah. um, enlightenment is like you know you're being sort of drowned out by the light, whereas enchantment is this beautiful dance between light and dark, and mm. this recognition that light and dark actually depend upon each other to exist,
2: mm.
1: and one cannot exist without the other. So I'd say the enlightenment and its quest to know and to obtain knowledge resulted in desire to have absolute knowledge Mm. and an incapacity to live in the mystery of being and in fact a denial uh of mystery of the mystery that is at the heart of what it means to be alive i'd say and i'm being very reductive right now because you know we only have so much time in the world but (laughs) but um i think that uh you know an interesting contrast between the enlightenment and and you know perhaps more Zen ways of thinking if Descartes said, "I think, therefore I am hmm. right consider the father of the Enlightenment in many ways, hmm. but in Zen Buddhism, there's this very constant awareness that you are not your thoughts,
2: hmm. right.
1: and in fact, that you will never be able to get to the bottom of who you are because who you are is a kind of inexhaustibleness. Um, and so you can't actually pinpoint the essence of who you are because the essence of who you are is connected to the mystery mm. of the great being.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I think that in the, and in, in it's quest or in their quest for absolute knowledge, many folks in the enlightenment ended up trying to exercise themselves of something that they never can, which is that great mystery. Um, and so I think the project that I am involved in is the task of reconciliation Mm. with that great mystery, which has been, um, denied rejected. I mean, and that great mystery can be, can be in some ways symbolized as not enlightenment, right. But darkness, another word for the unknown is darkness.
2: Mm.
1: And if you're trying to grow a plant, you have to put a seed into rich, dark soil. Mm. Mm. Right. Yeah. And there has to be some light, but you can't like overwhelm it with light, because mm-hmm. then the seed won't won't grow. And so there's this there's this beautiful mixture of light and darkness. That which when coming together brings forth new life. It's the it's the two together that brings forth new life. Hmm. So that's a little riff on the enlightenment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, no, I, I appreciate that. And what what is coming through for me here, I suppose, is the sense that perhaps um we can say that uh in in your uh in, in your formulation and juxtaposition here, that we can sort of pursue uh truth through enlightenment or we can pursue truth through enchantment but perhaps the truth that we come to by those paths uh is not quite is not quite the same i guess the way i might say it is to say that on the one hand there's certainly a desire uh and perhaps some utility in sort of deducing our way towards truth of a material kind and in some sense everything can be well, at least sort of approximated through a material explanation, and mm. of course there are people who see all things in material terms. And I oftentimes think that without those sorts of people, we wouldn't have the progress that we've that we've made in science and technology. And, right, just sort of, you know, um, cultivating the potential of the raw material of of reality. On the other hand, um, it seems to me that transcendent truth. Uh, I, I think the truth of enchantment is something that kind of requires us to understand how it is that the pieces of human nature from person to person and tribe to tribe carry with them the potential for us to experience the fullness of what life is when we love each other, when we mm. have reached that place of goodwill. But, but that is only possible to reach if we accept the light and the dark within one another and within ourselves and arrive at that point of reconciliation, which the end point of which is beloved community, the terminology of Martin Luther King jr. And the philosophy of nonviolence, uh, which is echoed in in my opinion by so much of what you say. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, um, but I guess sort of seizing upon that, um, that dichotomy there, Uh, I do want to take us into the landscape of sort of contemporary intellectual and political discourse here.
1: Let's do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's do it. Let's let's go into the.
1: I've been hovering, John.
0: That's all right. No, no. I, I wanted to take our time before we, you know. Like soldiers jumping out of a Black Hawk helicopter, <laughs>
2: you know, into the yeah. battlefield. You
0: know. yeah. <laughs> well, to really relax before we before we went there, because uh, mm-hmm. I I want to go ahead and uh, you know sort of. Litter the landscape a little bit with names we know: Kanye West, Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, <laughs> Lex Friedman, Ibram X. Kendi, Robin DiAngelo, you know, so on and so forth. Oh man! Uh, but but let me offer, uh, but, but let me offer a sort of a grand kind of uh, formulation here. But it won't be as long-winded as I'm capable of being here. <laughs> we certainly exist uh, in at the intersection of, you know, sort of a collision of movements in American life. Uh, today and of course, American democracy is, uh, has long been fraught with social movements, and it just seems like they continue to multiply. Um, but I think that wherever we're looking on the spectrum of social uh, social movement, um, it seems to me that there is a spectrum or along which some people are seeking absolute political victory. In terms of power, Mm -hmm. um, left and right. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And then you step inward from that and you start to engage people who are seeking victory in terms of power, but also see some pathway towards some reconciliation or at least relative amicable peace between parties who are different but might have some deeper things in common. And then I think that further inward from that even you have some folks who are seeking to the greatest extent imaginable a true and total reconciliation between warring factions across our political landscape and tribal divides even if it's not 100% possible in any given moment that that nevertheless at all times is is the horizon is the kingdom is sort of the true north is trying to find our way to that beloved community and not a priori considering anybody to be mm-hmm. inadmissible to that, insofar as we all have the potential within ourselves uh for sort of true and deeper redemption. For myself, I I, I plant my flag there, you know, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. the beloved community is the goal. And um I certainly regard you as a kindred spirit in that way, but mm-hmm. I'm wondering if first of all, if that larger formulation sort of resonates with you and and if you would sort of, if so, if you would place yourself along that spectrum in any particular particular location.
1: Mm, Well, this is tricky because, (laughs) I mean, certainly the third category strikes me as true and simultaneously, you know, I don't seek utopia. Mm. Uh, I do not seek the banishment of darkness. And I think that this is something um, that has been a part of a certain particular strand of Christianity for a long time. Mm. Um, Whereas Jungian thought, and you can probably tell I'm super into Carl Jung, but Jungian thought holds that this, this idea that we've been talking about the kingdom of heaven as an archetype or the wholeness of the human being requires integration, which obviously has cultural clout in our nation Um, and integration on a individual level requires integrating the contraries of one's being integrating the darkness and the light within one's being Mm. Um, not the banishment of the darkness, which isn't possible um, because of that mystery that will always be uh, a part of what it means to be human. And so, yes, I mean, the path that I walk is is reconciliation as defined in that way right oh. as as understood or as informed by this concept of integration, and what that looks like might change depending upon the context that i'm that I find myself in mm. um, but the feeling that one has when one is optimizing on that path is of inner peace and inner contentment, regardless right. of who is coming at you, right. be it Kanye West, mm-hmm. be it Ben Shapiro, <laughs> be it Jordan Peterson, be it Robin D'Angelo, be it Ibn Kendi. Right. Um, does that help tease out?
0: Well, yeah, it absolutely does. And let me just say that, you know, I, I do uh, share your, um, Concern and even uh, perhaps uh, sort of uh, aversion to sort of striving towards utopian endpoints, if you will, you know, um, uh, scriptural, you know, uh, biblical theology is interesting because you simultaneously get this vision of the kingdom of heaven as something that's sort of grand and coming and societal sort of destiny and so forth. And yet, you know, Jesus also says that the kingdom of heaven lies within you. And it seems mm-hmm. to me that therein is that sort of internal peace that you've made reference to. And that's something that unfolds on the journey. The the, mm-hmm. the the reason the horizon metaphor I think is useful to me is because, you know, it is this 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 line for which you you strive. The direction is clear. And yet you can never actually reach the horizon. Because the horizon Mm -hmm. itself continues to change. It sort of moves with you, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet you are coming closer and closer all the time as you, as you seek it, but the world is round, you know? Yeah. And so, (laughs) you know, the journey in which you find the kingdom, so to speak, to at least use it metaphorically here is one that goes on and on and on, you know, and yet Mm -hmm. there's still a vision for, for, for what it is. Right. But in offering that, um, I guess I'd, want to ask you here um to to weigh in a little bit on um our different factions or different tribes here i i named the names uh that i did a moment ago uh uh, which you just uh repeated here because these are all thinkers that you and i are sort of to varying degrees sort of in, in touch with directly or indirectly uh you know there's there's this wide kaleidoscope of conversations taking place. And I think that they matter. I think that they influence mm-hmm. the way people think they influence the way we act and show up in the world, the way we treat each other and the way we sure. yeah, do or do not live according to, you know, the better and higher versions of ourselves, the better angels of our nature. Um, in general, um, what are the, because I believe you and I both see uh, light and and dark across the spectrum, even if perhaps you know we might see varying proportions in whatever way. What is the light and the dark in sort of the broader th- third wave uh, social justice movement? Um, these two people are not are not exactly the same, and so I I I, I don't want people to think I'm lumping t- them together just carelessly. But Abraham X Kendi, Robin D'Angelo, they are distinct thinkers. But um, what are the what is the light in the dark that you see on that side of things? And and what are they missing in their critics, in the Coleman Hughes's, the Jordan Peterson's, the Sam Harrises of the world? And they are all very much distinct from each other, right?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: I, I get the sense that you would agree with me that each side uh, is striving towards some good that we can see, but missing something about the other side. But weigh the light in the dark for me in, in that direction to begin with.
1: Yeah, I mean I think both Ibrahim Kindi and Robin D'Angelo, from what the you know, the limited information that I know about them have have experienced incredible pain and suffering
2: mm-hmm.
1: in their personal lives. Um, have struggled with a sense of self-worth, mm-hmm. as we all have in our personal lives, myself mm-hmm. included,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and are seeing how that plays out amongst different groups, particularly within the American fabric and are trying to find solutions to alleviate that pain and suffering. Mm. Right. And so I think that's the light. Mm. Um, I think that the darkness, this is ironic, but the darkness, cause you know, when I hear darkness, I hear the unknown. I hear the unknown, mm. right? There's no moral connotation. I necessarily attach mm. to darkness. Right. This is also a uh, problem failure of the enlightenment. But anyway, mm,
2: sure.
1: um, mm. right. so I just hear the unknown. Um, mm. and the unknown is full of both good and bad, let's say.
2: Right.
1: Um, but so use the term that you just use the shadow, uh, the shadow in this faction is that I think they are seeking utopia. Mm. <laughs> um, even Kendi, when he pursues what he calls equity and he says that, you know, Yeah, differences in outcome are a reflection of um, fundamental inequality or fundamental uh, immoral discrimination, let's say. I think that baked into that premise is the notion that we could ever achieve a world in which everyone had the same material outcome, which in my mind is neither possible nor desirable. Thing about darkness and light being aspects of the same thing is that, you know, you might see me and I might be struggling and I might be, let's say very, very depressed, which I have been in the past. I might be struggling with depression and you might want to immediately alleviate me of that. But what you might not know is that in my process of going through that and wrestling with that, I discover my own light. And if you would have simply taken it away from me but via policy, right, public policy or otherwise, you might have actually robbed me of something very important that I needed to go through in order to see and hold and behold my own light. And so this goes, I think, beyond the material Aspect of, of what gets sort of focused on in a lot of our political discourses. Um, and I think that both Ibram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo have um, in many ways focused on trying to raise material equity for people from disadvantaged groups in order to uh, help us heal again. And that's where the light is. But I think Thinking about the African American experience, in particular, I think that we could, you know, let's say, tomorrow we wave a magic wand and we get reparations. Right. Right. Yeah. Just, just let's let's entertain that idea from a
2: sure.
1: Uh, societal policy lens.
0: Mm-hmm. It might happen we, one day.
1: It might. Ha- it could very well happen. Yeah, right. It might. Um, not out of the realm of possibility. If we haven't mourned our historical traumas, if we actually haven't taken the time to sit with our sufferings Mm. and mourn and go through a period of grief, grieving and mourning, man does not live by bread alone.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. There is no amount of material equity that could be given to us that would Feel the gap or feel the hole that needs to be healed, and that can only be healed by a kind of collective mourning. Mm. And my sense is that both the Ibram Kindys and the Robin D'Angelo's of the world have not wrestled or uh, talked about <laughs> really that emotional piece. Mm. Um. Yeah. So that's like very briefly speaking, what I would say is the light in the dark of of that sort of faction,
0: right? And so you know, and so yeah. So you've addressed, um, you know, sort of one side of this uh, yeah. coin, and yeah, I'm curious to hear you weigh in on the other. You know, I think that uh, certainly, you know, you, you and I have, I think, drawn real inspiration from the example of uh, Jordan Peterson and so much of what yeah. he's talked about and offered over time. And uh, you know, Ben Shapiro not somebody I, I have much of a relationship with, but I've met him a couple of times and I've covered him quite a bit. He's a remarkable uh, entrepreneur, media entrepreneur, as well as a very capable thinker and polemicist. And so, you know, we've seen yeah. over the Daily Wire, Peterson and Shapiro have sort of joined
1: forces and, you yeah. know, there's a mistake, by the way, but
0: yeah, <laughs> ah, well, feel, feel free to, feel free to elaborate on that. Or maybe that, maybe that yeah. comes into the response here. You know, I do think that, you know, many people would say that they, they make a strong case against the, you know, the weaknesses or maybe even moral deficiencies of sort of the social justice left. Uh, but, you know, and I say this truly with, 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 with love and respect here. I, I really yeah. do. Uh, I don't think that their approach is quite your approach, or if I'm being honest, my approach for that matter. But I'm wondering how you evaluate it. Uh where's the light and where's the shadow and in, in the way that, you know, perhaps, you know, Peterson and Shapiro in, in particular, and there there are others who can fall into that larger hemisphere. Uh, but where's the light and the shadow in the way they're engaging, you know, prosecuting the the culture war, I suppose.
1: Yes, I've spoken to both Ben Shapiro and mm. Jordan Peterson. I think that both of them, you know, come from this enlightenment tradition. Mm where there's this desire to quest. Questing is sort of like the root word of the, of the word question, mm. right? So they're questing for the truth.
0: I would just say very quickly that I imagine yeah. both of them would also identify themselves as critics of the Enlightenment tradition too. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just
1: mm. finding that as
0: a little bit of a, at least an ironic observation, but yes.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I, I would be curious. I think I've heard... I think in the wake of postmodernism, though, I've heard them defend sure. the Enlightenment. With, sure, for sure, with yeah. vigor and you know. But I'm sure they would have the critiques as well. Right. Yeah. Um, but in a broad sense, if you think about the Enlightenment as this mm-hmm. uh, period in which people were questing for yeah. the truth, I agree with you. Yeah. The mm-hmm. deductive reasoning, right? right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that both Shapiro and uh, Peterson do this. I also think like Peterson in particular, when he was in the, the, I think when he was at his height was when he was sort of like waxing poetic about the Bible, the book of Genesis, Mm. maps of meaning, the Pinocchio story, how it, how a lot of these stories that are deep in our culture, Mm. um, you know, thousands of years old, really Uh, fairy tales, both, both, ancient and contemporary or speaking to this quest within the human being mm. to become our higher selves. I think that Peterson was magnificent when he was, when he was on that track. Mm. Um, mm. I don't think Ben Shapiro was ever on that track mm. in my experience. Um, and Ben Shapiro has many talents as you, as you've pointed out. Mm. Um, but I don't know if you've read the book, the master and his emissary by uh, Emma Gilchrist.
2: No. Uh,
1: It's very interesting. It's, it's, it's about the brain and the, the two different hemispheres of the brain and how the left brain is very much deductive and, uh, you know, uh, seeing things in categories and pieces. And we need that to to discern and to do all these things and how the right hemisphere is all about seeing the full picture.
2: Mm.
1: And where the left brain sees things more linearly, uh, the right brain sees things in cycles. Um, and Ben Shapiro strikes me as the emissary in Mm. the context of the book. And the emissary is the left brain, Mm. Uh, but the master is the right brain. Mm. Um, And so, you know, my hat tip to his capacity to build a media empire and generate ideas and get them out there. But there's a, there's a kind of poetic sensibility Mm. that I always saw in Peterson that I never saw in Mr. Shapiro. Mm. Um, and I think that there has, in this marriage, right, of the sort of Peterson world with the Daily Wire, yeah. I fear <laughs> mm. that Peterson's poetry will be lost to this sort of deductive reasoning, central repository. I um, I saw that he came out with a new series on on Exodus, and I haven't seen it yet.
0: Right. Yeah, and he's in a conversation with many other folks, Dennis Prager, and and, right. and others. Yes.
1: Right, but I noticed that not a single woman was on this panel. All right.
0: Yeah.
1: And um,
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not. You might, you I, might be right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, huh, that's, that's interesting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I. It's interesting because I do think that we're in a time period where we're seeing what's happening in Iran. Yeah. And in other places but in Iran in particular I think we're seeing this kind of desire for the divine feminine to come into being mm. and to take its place with the divine masculine.
2: Mm.
1: And
0: can you give us just 20 or 30 seconds on what you mean by divine feminine for folks who don't have a developed sense of that?
1: I can try.
0: <laughs> I know. That's a big order. It's, we probably should have hit that at the top, but that's okay.
1: The <laughs> yeah. so thing about yin and yang, right? Within right, the yeah. Dallas mm-hmm. symbolism, right. um, yang is divine masculine. Yin is divine feminine. You can think of these as energies. Right. Um, yang is all about discernment and, mm-hmm. um, Discrimination in the sense of being able to tell one thing from another mm-hmm. um penetration you know there's obvious symbolism there uh yen, which is divine feminine energy is all about the capacity to hold, yeah right think about the womb, think about what it means to nurture
2: mm.
1: an infant, which is the capacity to hold, which is not the same thing as. Let's say just to give you a very quick example, let's say I'm angry. There's a te- there are teachings in, in Zen Buddhism that say, can you hold your anger? Mm. Don't try to suppress it. Don't try to repress it, because it'll come out in unconscious ways. Yeah. Right? Can you hold it
2: mm.
1: and look upon it compassionately? Because what if you do that, what you'll discover is that these are simply energies that are oscillating within us back and forth to and fro. And if you're, if you can hold it and breathe through it, you will find that that energy of anger can actually transmute into another energy. Mm. But if you're trying to suppress it, then you won't experience that. And Mm. so divine feminine energy is really about the capacity to hold and to nurture and to be with what is, Mm -hmm such that what is can transform naturally.
0: And thus there is a feminine virtue that is missing perhaps uh, Hmm. in the way in which, uh, you know, these, some of our, our, our friends and sort of, you know, broader associates are sort of uh, pursuing, um, you know, their, their quest here to sort of vanquish the lies of, of their enemies as it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah.
0: You and I always have another conversation coming so there'll be opportunity to unpack these more but I'm but I'm glad that you made that point because um you know I in in myself seeking to be somebody who who is pursuing you know hopefully not in a misguided utopian way but who is pursuing sort of an expansion of the breadth and a, a deepening you know mm. of the um of, of the spirit of reconciliation in our politics, in our discourse, in our understanding of, of one another, um, being able to sort of see clearly, you know, the things that we are all missing in our approach. And I'm sure that I'm missing quite a, quite a few pieces in my toolkit here, you know, um, to be able to identify the things that we were missing so we can complete them in each other is sort of the goal for me.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: um, but I was I was also struck by your commentary on on poetry, sort of you know missing the poetry and, and and making you know the moral arguments. One person who is considered long considered to be a poet of our age, <laughs> I guess you know where I'm going. Great
1: segue, John! Yeah. Wow, this right? is the smoothest thing I've ever seen. Well done. <laughs> we all have our
0: we all have our talents. That this is mine. <laughs> you know, uh, is uh, someone who I you know I I suspect you know a fair amount of. Bit about, which is uh you know, kanye west yeah the artist mm. formerly known as kanye west yay yeah
1: um, very different path from prince
0: <laughs> very different path from prince right yeah. um but you know uh in line with some of what we've been talking about here i mean you know he's clearly a person who's experienced uh, a great deal of pain
2: yeah
0: um, in his life and and part of what i think i've observed is sort of the capacity of the broader political universe to, I mean, we do this to people all the time, but in a very specific way to this one individual who seems to be, for better or worse, the avatar of so much uh, in, our, in our subconscious here. Sort of the weaponization of Kanye West's pain. I've seen it on yeah. the left going back to the days in which you know, he was saying, you know, George W. Bush doesn't care about Black people and so mm-hmm. forth and you know and he seemed i remember when he said that mike myers uncomfortably squiggling, <laughs> squirming but uh, next to him you know and uh, you know kanye's you know anger and 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 pain was something that sort of you know uh made him uh, a a voice for folks who who felt similarly even if it seemed to me at the time that he wasn't taking an altogether you know nuanced uh, view of sure. sort of the forces he was speaking against um and and yet you know over time you know kanye has come you know uh as far to the other side of things conventionally speaking as you could ever see anybody (laughs) any public figure travel he's done that though you know while holding on to this immense cultural cachet which he's been spending like crazy right you know losing Mm -hmm. his old fans and yet his cultural impact on American society is so indelible that he's still, even at this moment, it's, you, you can't pull your eyes away from him, you know? Mm. And what he's achieved, interestingly enough, is, is he's become an authentic voice. when I say authentic, I, I don't mean that he's, he's right in the things he's saying necessarily, but he's become now a vessel for the pain of an entirely sort of opposing spectrum of Americans, you know? Right. But- white mm. people who feel like you know they are being they are being replaced that they are being censored and rejected and marginalized by mainstream society people who attribute this you know to frankly to 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 Jewish people and certainly to the left in general and so on and so forth kanye seems to have caught that you know in his spirit and is giving voice to it you know now there's an immense amount i think of you know Narcissism and so forth that goes into this, and I do think somebody people have to recognize the fact that they you know this is an individual who's been given uh who who is a frail human being like all of us who's seized in this fame this stardom this this wealth, and that's a very complex and difficult experience for 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 anybody, but somehow or the other somehow or other it just seems that you know the reason Kanye West is important is not because he's a celebrity. But because he seems to rapidly be telling us all sorts of things about ourselves, and he's doing it so quickly that i'm not sure we've really caught up to to the lessons yet, but I'm wondering if you might be glimpsing a little bit of what some of the lessons are with respect to you know the the arc of Kanye and you know what the what ye's life uh, re- reveals about our own
1: well, I'm certainly not too surprised that. Kanye would go from, you know, George Bush doesn't care about black people to wearing a White Lives Matter t-shirt. Right. Uh, yeah. mm. Kendrick Lamar said that a fatal attraction is common and what we have common is pain. Mm. And I think that's what you're seeing. Uh, you're seeing that dynamic play itself out in right. the journey that Kanye has been on. We also have James Baldwin saying in the 60s that people don't know what to do with their pain. And the reason why we gravitate towards hatred and prejudice and bigotry is because we don't know how to deal with pain. Mm -hmm. And this is again where I think that energy of the divine feminine, which is about how to hold all of the different aspects of the human experience, including pain such that it heals. Um, I think that's a, that's a big piece that's missing from our, I don't know what you want to call it, political discourse, the way we show up yeah. with each other in general and the way Kanye is showing up. Cause it's clear to me that Kanye is in a lot of pain mm. and suffering Um, and all of that is, you know, exacerbated by the fact that he's such a public figure. And when you're such a public figure of that stature, you run the risk of having your entire sense of self-worth be dependent upon external validation, which is what narcissism is fundamentally. Um, People sometimes think that narcissism is selfishness, but in fact, with narcissism, you have no inner sense of self.
2: Mm.
1: And this that's why you have to seek it out through the form of external validation. You saw this with Trump as well. It's no It's no surprise that these two personalities would find each other if you look at it through that lens. Mm. And so, you know, yeah. from what I'm seeing... Kanye is someone who is in a lot of pain. He is someone who defines his sense of self-worth based upon how much money he has in his bank account, how much, how many women he has access to, um, and so on and so forth. And, you know, there's a common theme of materialism here. We also see him struggling in his relationship with Christianity,
2: Hmm.
1: uh, given all of those material indicators through which he identifies his sense of self-worth. Um, and he doesn't know how to deal with that pain. Doesn't know how to hold that pain. The divine feminine is lacking in our world today. And so, what he he does, what everyone else who doesn't know how to deal with pain does, which is to say, he projects it, and he projects it onto the Jews. He projected. He projected onto the Jewish community Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in an attempt to discharge pain. Right, Mm -hmm. Brene Brown in her TED Talk, The Power of Vulnerability, said that blame is described in the research as a way to discharge pain. And the reason why you have hundreds of thousands of people, I mean the essence, I think, of, of why you have hundreds of thousands of people resonating with what Kanye says, encouraging him, is because they too are experiencing their own pain. And they don't know how to hold such that it transmutes as opposed to discharging it and projecting it onto another group of people. Mm. And so this is why, you know, theory of enchantment is such a practice. It is a methodology. It is a Dharma. It is a training because there's no amount of intellectualization that can stop this pattern, right? There's no amount of, you know, Let's, let's talk about a, a set of propositions and definitions mm-hmm. that will transform our distorted ways of being into new ways of being. It's only practice that will do that. It's only adopting an ecology of practices, adopting a set of habits that you live your life according to that will actually change your way of being from a distorted form into, a, <laughs> I was going to say enlightened one, but for the sake of this conversation, I'll say enchanted. Uh, enchanted mm. way of being and that is what kanye is revealing to us i think at this moment and of course kanye is a brilliant artist
2: yeah
1: and a brilliant musician and there's so much power and beauty in his music musicianship mm. But there's also since the beginning. I don't know if you saw the Kanye West documentary on Netflix. There's always been this little boy who's been trying to prove himself, right? People, people wouldn't call him a rapper. They would only call him a producer, right? And and you see this sort of like machismo. You know, I'm going to prove to you I am the greatest, as opposed to knowing you're the greatest. Mm. They're not the same things, Mm. right? and you know, Kanye wants to be chosen in the in the broadest sense of the word. There's mm-hmm. one thing in knowing you're chosen there's another thing in wanting to be chosen. And if you have a sense of self-worth that's lacking, which Kanye does, and you have it manifesting it in these like distorted religious ways as it is with Kanye, you will attack a people who have a sense of chosenness because you will see that people as undermining. That within you and as, as threatening that within you. Mm. So, you know, I was watching an interview with Erica Badu the other day. Yeah. So beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an old interview actually. Mm-hmm. And she said that the entire world is depressed. Yeah. The entire world is mentally unwell, period. And mm-hmm. everyone is coping. Mm. and that is what i see happening with kanye west
2: Mm.
0: indeed well i'll take it to a final comment here uh Mm. and question for you to respond to but um you know there is a need for us to be able to sit with both one another's pain and our own i think Mm -hmm. um In accordance with what you said. And to to borrow your terminology, uh, (laughs) I'm sure I'm inviting. uh, I don't know him and I'm sure I'm inviting all sorts of jokes to be made about him here. But uh, but uh, you've inspired me here to say that, you know, I've actually been quite impressed uh, with the uh, uh, the feminine virtue of Lex Friedman. (laughs) <laughs> I, you know. uh, yeah he
1: does have feminine he does have feminine virtues in him yeah. i've seen that too
0: yeah. yes yes it's not of yeah. course to say that he doesn't have masculine uh virtues for anybody who wants to be silly about it but <laughs> um but you know i uh I, I don't think he would mind me saying this you know i, I was uh, you know pleased to have had a conversation with uh sam harris recently yeah. and, and sam and i I don't think this is actually on the recording, but Sam and I talked a bit afterwards and, and, uh, I think Sam has a a great deal of, uh, uh, admiration for, for Lex, but was also critical of his conversation with Kanye West, uh, because Sam Mm -hmm. sort of felt that it proved the limitations of such conversations. And at the time I actually, I'm, I'm I'm a real Johnny come lately to Lex Friedman. So I went back and, you know, uh, Listen to that conversation, sort of taken in sort of, you know, what he's putting out into the world a bit. And I was actually very inspired by his mm. conversation with Kanye simply because he demonstrated an extraordinary capacity to sit with real pain, his own pain,
2: yeah. because
0: Kanye was wounding him. Kanye was mm-hmm. saying things that were fairly blatantly, certainly as Lex was receiving them, anti-Semitic, right? Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of other people, when stung in that way, would get up and leave the table or blow up at the table and turn it over. Mm. Uh, Or the other possible response is a person shrinks into oneself uh, and betrays their own principles by not giving voice uh, to their frustration or even their anger. But it seemed that Lex was able to sort of take that, transform it into an honest expression of his intense disagreement but leavened deeply with love and compassion for the good that he saw in Kanye West in real time. I thought that was an extraordinary example. And I raise it because as I look at sort of the landscape of, of movements here, you know, I mean, I think we come to a reckoning with social justice. We come to a reckoning with Civil liberties and freedom of speech, and there's not really a fixed endpoint. Again, like the you know the horizon is ever in front of us, and I think that there are competing goods here, which we can only you know sort of inexorably reconcile over the course of things, you know. But again, at the mm-hmm. heart of what I believe is this idea that you know in in pursuing the beloved community. We increase our aggregate capacity within to accomplish the things that you've described here—to build up an inner peace within ourselves that is closely, sort of, interwoven uh, with our understanding of the deep dignity and beauty that exists uh, in those who are immediately like us politically, and those who oppose us politically and socially. That we can progressively grow to grow towards one another, right, without mm-hmm. papering over the things that divide us. In fact, by integrating, you know. The, the difficulty and tension that exists in those in those differences. Uh, many people do not believe that that sort of consciousness can can scale up you know but I sure. look at I look at Lex and frankly I look at you you know and I look at what we're building at braver angels and uh, and what so many others are doing. And it makes me believe that there really is a bright day on the horizon, you know and it won't be a utopian endpoint. They'll be, you know, they'll be, the history continues with all of its mm-hmm. struggles and all of its pains. But, you know, I have a beautiful vision of an America that is reawakened to the beauty, you know, of the wide stretch of humanity that exists within it. And I'm wondering, you know, do you have a, an American vision, if you will, a vision for, you know, what is beautiful and can be more beautiful, you know, in this country? Uh, that sort of flickers on as a picture in your mind when you think about, you know, just the good that tomorrow could could bring. What does the America of tomorrow look like um, in the imagination of Chloe Valdary?
1: It looks like what America has always aspired to, which is "E pluribus unum," out of many, one. Which is true on the individual level as an aspiration. That's that integration that I spoke about earlier. It's true on a societal level. Can we have different cultures, different creeds, different peoples of different backgrounds with their own traditions and their own ways of being able to come together and also maintain a kind of unified sense of being? Can you have the many and the one simultaneously, which is the very nature of the divine?
0: Well, Chloe, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, thank you for, uh, for Uniting America. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening to Uniting America. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating, review, or suggestions. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and tune in for more content and learn more about the movement to depolarize America at braverangels.org.